0: As we extend the bounds of surgical resection for hepatic malignancies, we overcome previously held limitations of our efforts against the disease. How do our techniques and theories on hepatic resection also relate back to hepatic transplantation? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon. Our guest today is Dr. Alan Hemming, Professor of Surgery and Chief of Transplantation and Hepatobiliary Surgery at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Hemming. Thanks for having me on, Mark. We are discussing hepatic resection and transplantation. Dr. Hemming... It has always been that you were either trained as a hepatobiliary surgeon or a transplant surgeon. How are you doing both, and what is going on now in the training of young surgeons in terms of both hepatic resection and transplantation?
1: Traditionally, in the United States, you're either trained as someone who resects the liver or takes part of the liver out or a transplanter who does liver transplantation and kidney transplantation, et cetera. That hasn't been true in countries other than the U.S. In Europe and in Canada, the training has been geared towards disease process so that if you were a liver surgeon, you did liver resectional surgery and transplantation. I think what's changed in the U.S. a little bit over the last few years is the introduction of living related donor transplantation where the transplanters all of a sudden got involved in resecting part of the liver or use as a donor graft. The necessary techniques for that were sort of transported from resectional surgery. Once the transplanters got involved in that, there was some crossover between the two where sharing of information and ideas led to, I think, a hybrid type of surgery and everybody realizing that there was a benefit to combined training.
0: So it won't be in the future that someone will call themselves clearly either just a transplant surgeon or a resectional surgeon?
1: Although there's still surgeons who will be doing only liver resectional work, I think you're going to see more and more of the very high-end surgery being done by people who can do both liver transplantation and resection work.
0: Which is technically more demanding?
1: Both transplantation and resection at the high end have equally demanding components to it. In fact, many of the components are the same.
0: In your practice... What are the most reasons that you do transplantation for?
1: Where I am, we do both pediatric and adult liver transplantation. And the most common reason I would perform a liver transplant right now is for end-stage liver disease secondary to uh, hepatitis C. And a very close part of that currently in the United States is hepatocellular carcinoma, usually from hepatitis C, but primary liver cancers also have become a very big indication for transplantation.
0: Do you ever transplant for alcoholic cirrhosis?
1: We do. In our particular area, approximately 10% of patients probably have alcoholic cirrhosis that undergo transplantation. To be clear, those are patients that damage their liver with alcoholic cirrhosis but are no longer drinking and have undergone at least a six-month period of sobriety with counseling and psychotherapy.
0: Are there any ethical issues with that?
1: I think there are always ethical issues when it comes to liver transplantation. The bottom line is we have a scarce resource. We have more patients on our waiting list at any given time, then we will have livers. Approximately 10 to 15% of patients on the waiting list will die while awaiting a liver. So when you start making judgments about who does and doesn't get a liver, there are always ethics involved. The decision about whether to transplant someone who has alcoholic liver disease is really one that's made almost by society rather than any particular transplant program. It's a standard across the United States to transplant folks who have developed alcoholic liver disease. It's a relative standard to transplant only people who have demonstrated that they've stopped for a prolonged period of time.
0: In your research, you've demonstrated preoperative portal vein embolization. Why do you do this and what does it do?
1: Preoperative portal vein embolization refers to Prior to doing the liver surgery and removing, say, three-quarters of the liver or more, we would go in with our interventional radiologist, have them put a needle into the portal vein, and the portal vein is the main vein that comes from the gut that brings blood flow into the liver and initially branches into a right and a left inside the liver. If we were going to leave just a small portion of the left side of the liver, we would have our interventional radiologist place a needle into the right portal vein, block it, and that diverts all of the portal flow into the left side of the liver. That causes the left side of the liver to grow before the surgery. So we may increase the volume of the left lobe of the liver by 30 to 40%, which gives us a much greater margin of safety so that if we then were resecting, say, all of the right side of the liver and half of the left, instead of leaving only 20% or 25% of the liver, we may now be leaving 30 or 35% of the liver, which would give us much less risk of liver failure.
0: If you have just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and our guest today is Dr. Alan Hemming, Professor of Surgery and Chief of Transplantation and Hepatobiliary Surgery at the University of Florida College of Medicine. We are discussing hepatic resection and transplantation. Dr. Hemming, is hepatic resection ever done for non-malignant disease?
1: Oh, certainly. There are a variety of tumors in the liver, tumor just meaning something that occupies some space, I guess, that are benign. That would include uh, things like adenomas, which are something that have some malignant potential but have a bigger potential to bleed, and that we would resect those. There are certain cysts or cyst adenomas that we would resect that are benign. There are a variety of other things that we might do.
0: And what about benign conditions that require aggressive, extended hepatic resection.
1: If we're referring to the series that we published that include vascular reconstruction and a variety of very large operations, it would be very rare that we would perform that for, in fact, I can't think of a reason that we would do it for a benign condition. The majority of the time that we're doing these extended resections that include vascular reconstruction or taking out very large amounts of liver, it's to get a margin on a malignant condition. So in other words, get rid of all of the cancer cells for a lot of the benign conditions, we wouldn't need that sort of clearance, and it's very unlikely that we would need to know to those great lengths.
0: How do you coordinate these extended resections with adjuvant therapy, such as chemotherapy or radiation-type treatments?
1: It really very much depends on the type of disease we're resecting. But for instance, for colorectal metastases to the liver, we would generally these days give preoperative chemotherapy that would include agents like Avastin that have to be stopped about six to eight weeks prior to the surgery due to some complications they can cause. So we would time the chemotherapy. They'd usually get about six cycles of chemotherapy. We'd wait six to eight weeks, and then do their surgery after that. And then usually about six weeks after that, they'll restart their chemotherapy.
0: I know that there are researchers working specifically to study how to protect the liver during the surgical procedure. Can you tell us briefly about that?
1: Sure. There are a variety of different ways of doing this. One of the things we do during liver surgery, or we may do, is interrupt the blood supply to the liver so that there's no bleeding as we come through the liver. That obviously gives an ischemic injury to that liver. There's no blood flow to it. One of the ways to protect the liver from that. like You can cool the liver, and that's one of the things we do in some of the very large resections that we do. We can use something called ischemic preconditioning. That means that we temporarily interrupt the blood flow to the liver, not while we're coming through it, but just to give it a small, I guess, taste of the things to come. And what that does is it primes the biochemistry of the hepatocytes or the liver cells to sustain a greater injury later on. So it'll tolerate cessation of blood flow for a longer period of time. So what we'll do is put the clamps on the inflow to the liver for about five minutes, then we'll release it for 15. And then the next time we put the clamp on, we can leave it on for up to an hour and the liver will tolerate that injury much better. There's also a variety of different drugs that people are working on for inducing the same mechanism to improve the liver function after we finish the surgery.
0: Why is it so important to protect the liver?
1: There's two things that we do as we resect. Obviously, we're taking out a percentage of the liver function. There's a certain volume of liver there. If we take more than about 80% of that volume, we risk the patient going into liver failure. One of the ways of preserving some of the function, the immediate function, is to protect it from the ischemia that we give it. So let's say we had a liver that was going to have 20% of its function if we didn't give it an ischemic injury, but we give it an ischemic injury and that throws it down to 10%. Well, that person can go into liver failure. So if we protect it and keep it at that full 20% of what we leave, that patient will survive and go on for possible cure.
0: Now, in talking about transplantation, you mentioned that a reasonable percentage of patients will die waiting for their transplant. What is the average time? that someone waits until they get a transplant?
1: That very much depends on how sick they are and what region of the country they're in. The way that livers are allocated in the United States goes by something called a MELD score, which is an assessment of how sick they are, how much liver dysfunction they have, so that the sicker you are, the more likely you are to get a liver transplant. Now, there is some regional disparity in terms of at what point you're getting transplanted with what MELD score. So, for instance, in Florida, we tend to transplant at a relatively lower MELD score, in other words, less thick patients than might be the case in the New York or Chicago area just because of demand in that area for livers. For instance, if you have a liver tumor that fit within certain criteria, then your MELD score may be bumped up in order to transplant you sooner. And if your mouth score is very low, then you may wait for, for a very, very long time before you get transplanted, more than a year. On average, I'd say 50% of the patients that are on our list in Florida are transplanted within six months.
0: Now, I'm a great Mickey Mantle fan, but you might recall many years ago, Mickey Mantle, in the medical community, there were some concerns. He needed a transplant, and it seemed that he got his transplant very, very rapidly. Any comments on this?
1: Well, there were a lot of comments about when he got his transplant. He was inappropriately put to the top of the list. I can assure you that really wasn't true. There's a very strict selection criteria that's different now than it was then. But the bottom line is there was always a list. It's not something that you can pick and choose over. And there actually was an investigation into the whole Mickey Mantle issue. And there was never shown to be any favoritism or jumping of cues or
0: anything like that. Finally, we always talk about minimally invasive surgery and laparoscopic approaches. Does this have any role, even in the future? into extended hepatic resection or transplantation?
1: Well, even now, we use laparoscopic surgery for some liver resections. There are a few people that have done some extended operations, extended liver resection or what we would call extended liver operations. None of them would include vascular resection. I would never say never. The techniques advance all the time, and it may well be at some point that we can use those techniques in the future. One of the limitations obviously is you have to get things in and out of somebody. So if you're taking a very large piece of something out, you have to have a hole to get it out. Similarly with liver transplantation, you have to get a liver out and a liver in and they're of certain size. So you need a certain size hole to get it in. We certainly do right and left lobectomies, which is half a liver. We will perform those laparoscopically. People have used laparoscopic liver surgery to do the living donor operations to minimize the amount of discomfort that someone who's willing to donate part of the liver will have. So I think that's as the technology improves, then I think for sure there's a role for more laparoscopic surgery in both liver transplantation and resection.
0: I want to thank our guest, Dr. Alan Hemming. We've been discussing hepatic resection and transplantation. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on MD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. And thank you for listening.
1: This is Leah Binder, Chief Executive Officer of the LeapFrog Group, and you've been listening to ReachMD-XM-157, the channel for medical professionals.